Joey asked me to share with you guys this morning out of Galatians, so um, I want to share with you guys first a, a funny story that I had that happened to me. This is about two years ago, and uh, I, I had grown up riding motor or riding uh, dirt bikes and four wheelers at our house, and uh, you know it was something I always loved. But eventually, you had to move, and so I always, since I moved back here, I've been looking for a, a motorcycle, and so I finally got one and. You know, I'm excited. It's a good starter bike, and I take it to the DMV in, uh, in Urbana. And, you know, so I'm there, you know, to get registration or whatever. And uh, the woman helping me out, nice lady, and uh, uh, she, it's an old bike. It was made in 1980. And so this woman says, um, your bike was made the same year I was born. And I don't know what happened, but some, I'm usually better than this. But... I just thought, I was like, yeah, I know, it's super old. <laughs> and I cannot tell you the regret that washed over me as those words slipped my mouth, just wanting to take them back. I promise you, if you were born before now, I do not think you're old. I, I, I do not think you're old. Yes, I do not think you're old. I promise. But I felt so guilty afterward, and even though it's a silly thing. I felt really guilty because I'm like, oh, man, maybe, you know, I don't know what she's going through. And then this punk kid comes in, and he says, yeah, you're really old. So I just felt really bad about it. And all that to say is that, you know, it, that's a silly story, but I still felt guilty about it. And I was thinking about it in Galatians, but a lot of times we do end up feeling silly about, or feeling guilty about things that are really silly. And a lot of times we call these things guilty pleasures. So an example could be that you, um, you watch a movie. And then afterward, you just feel guilty because you feel like I should have been doing something more productive or more spiritual. Or maybe you eat a donut, and afterward, you're like, I'm a glutton because I had a donut. You know, these simple things that uh, we do, and then we end up feeling guilty over, which I'm not sure we should. And so we have these guilty pleasures, we call them. And so you can, you can experience guilt when you do something, but you can also experience guilt if you don't do something. So either way, um, you're going to feel guilty. And more often than not, the reason that we feel this guilt is because we have accepted some measure of legalism or some measure of rules into our lives that we've made for ourselves. And this is, in fact, why Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians, is because they have accepted some measure of legalism into their life that God never gave them. They're making rules for themselves that God never gave them. And at this time that Paul's writing this letter, there, is, there are as many um, Gentile or non-Jewish believers in Jesus as there are um, uh, Jewish believers. And so he's writing them to help them fix these things. And the Jewish believers, having their whole life been subjected to the law of Moses, uh, the law given at Mount Sinai, they feel that these new believers coming in need to be Jewish in order to be a part of God's family. And so this is the whole thing that Paul's writing about, to address these issues. And to... But for us, you know, in the 21st century, we don't live in a Jewish culture or anything like that. So we've never been pressured to be uh, subjected to the Mosaic law, right? There's not people with running around with yarmulkes telling us to not eat bacon anymore. But so we've never experienced that. But we do experience these rules that we've made for ourselves. And Paul calls these things the elemental spiritual forces of the world. He says in Galatians 4.3, and I'll explain this. He said, so also... When we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of this world. And, when, and then Paul further explains this in Colossians, because he writes to the Colossians because they're experiencing many of the same things. Um, the believers there are trying to add to the message of Jesus. So they're trying to say, you need more in order to be more godly or to be anything else. You need to add to Jesus, in a sense. And so he says this in Colossians chapter 2. He says, uh, since you died with Christ... To the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world, do you submit its, to, to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These things which have to do with, uh, these which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use are based on merely human commandments and teachings. Such, such regu regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body but they lack in any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So what Paul's saying is that you've made all these things for yourself, these harsh treatment of the body, this self-imposed worship, all these things that you've added, 
And you're hoping that it's going to make you more godly. You're hoping that it's going to help you in your relationship with Jesus. But he says that these things actually have no benefit to your relationship with Jesus. They, they don't help you become any more godly. And he's saying, so some of these things, so basic, elemental, um, spirits of the world, what it is then is it's the basic worldly ideas about religion that try to get passed off as truth. Um, Pastor Joey, I think two weeks ago, talked about karma. That karma is one of these. It just seems right. It's a basic, elemental belief in the world about religion that tries to get passed off as truth. Or um, philosophy, empty deceit, harsh treatment of the body. I think about like the monks um, in the uh, um, you know year in the centuries after Jesus um, had, was resurrected. You know these monks would treat themselves horribly, do awful things to their body, all because trying to be more godly. But like Paul says in Galatians, that has actually no benefit to making you any more godly. And so Christians, for us today, what this can look like is that we think that uh, checking off all of the boxes makes us more lovely to God. That if we pray more, if we fast more, if we go to church more, you name it, that it makes us more acceptable and more open to God's grace. When in reality, that's not the case at all. That there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves more godly or anything like that. It's all by his grace and all by his unconditional love. And so that's what he's writing about. So maybe today you're dealing with guilt in the, in the form of some of those guilty pleasures. You know, the simple things. Maybe you just live with a guilty conscience. Or maybe you, uh, you feel like you can't enjoy things. Or maybe you feel like you have to use a certain Bible translation. Or you have to... Uh, tithe off your uh, net versus your gross or church wear or, you know, all these kind of things that we have, these things that we make up for ourselves, um, a certain style of worship, you know, all these different kind of things can look like legalism. Or maybe for some of you or some of us, it's that we live with a guilty conscience and that God feels far away from us because we're constantly being riddled by guilt even though he never, maybe some of those things we're feeling guilty about, he's not telling us to feel guilty about. Or maybe with relationship with Jesus feels more like a drudgery than a pleasure. So the question is, do you have any form of legalism in your life? And if so, what is your form of legalism? And how does it show up in your relationship with Jesus? And I would say that most of us do, if we're honest. I know, I'm just speaking for myself. Maybe you don't. But maybe for some of us, it's uh, 75% law and 25% grace. Or maybe for some of it's 50-50 or 90-10 or 99% grace and 1% law that we just believe we need that 1% of legalism in our relationship with Jesus. But today through the Holy Spirit, what Paul wants to show us is that what it means to live completely free under the influence of the law and legalism and to live completely and totally under the influence of grace, and that that's all we need. And so what I want to do today is completely destroy our confidence in the law and its ability to save us and transform us and completely put our faith in Jesus and his ability to save us and transform us by his grace. So because some of these things, um, and because Paul starts by addressing this, um, because sometimes we have way too much confidence in ourselves, we have way too much confidence in our ability to fulfill these things when in reality we need Jesus. So let's pray and we're going to read Galatians together and then get into it. So, Father, I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be with us. Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. Jesus, teach us what it means to live completely free from law and completely free from legalism and to live in grace. Lord, help us to let go of legalism and law and help us to trust you completely and totally with what you give us. Pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to rest upon us today and give us understanding. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So let's read Galatians. Um, we're gonna be in 421 through 5.1 today. Finishing up Galatians chapter four. And uh, this is what it says. It says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, 
one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of the divine promise. These things are to be taken figuratively. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child and shout for joy and cry aloud, you who never were in labor because more the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born according to the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of uh, the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. All right, that's a lot. So we're going to try to unpack that. So Starting in verse 21, Paul said, he starts by addressing those who are under the law or those who desire to be under the law. And this is the first thing that needs to be addressed in us because some of us love the law. We love our ability to make it happen on our own. And so he, he understands that what he first needs to do is to get to our hearts and to, and to take out that love of law within us. And this is an audience that Paul would have understand very well because he himself was this person. He was this person that loved law and self-righteousness. This is what it says, he writes about himself in Philippians. He says, if someone thinks, uh, else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, in other words, put confidence in themselves to be right, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So Paul was saying, I used to be this person. I used to be this person that could be, that I thought I was perfect on my own, that I could be right before God on my own. Because grace, grace is of no benefit to those who think they have it handled on their own. So what we first need to do is humble ourselves. And to use an example is if someone was um, uh, terminally ill, like they're just very sick, and you come up to them and try to uh, suggest a remedy or to give them something that's going to help them. But if they don't have an understanding that they're sick, they're going to think that you're stupid because why do I need your help? And so that, that's the purpose of the law. See, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, he said, the purpose of the law was to make sin exceedingly sinful. In other words, it was to reveal just how deep we were in sin, like to be an x-ray or a mirror to show our true state before God. And that's what we needed. So we, that we could see our real condition and realize, man, I messed up and I need a savior. That was the point of the law to humble the sinner. And this is something that our, our world needs to understand right now, is because the world is being sold the lie that it's completely good as is, that there's no room for improvement at all, and that if you do suggest any change or any improvement, then you're labeled bigoted or something like that. But that's the purpose of the law, to realize, no, there is room for improvement, and you can change. And that's what Jesus came to do. And that to, to humble ourselves and realize that we need a savior, and he's, and he's here to save. And this is what happens when you have no absolute truth. I found a study that said um, three out of four, so 75% of Americans don't believe in absolute truth. And when that's the case, then you can be your own God. Then you can identify as however you can, you know what I mean? You can, you're God, and you can say those things. I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm just being honest that we need... We need God, and we need His Spirit in our minds. And because the mind is separated apart from the Spirit of God isn't a good thing. And in Romans chapter 8, it says, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. Because the natural mind apart from the Spirit of God, is hostile toward him. It believes the worst about God. It blasphemes God. It doesn't trust God. And this is why transformation happens through the renewing of our minds. And so we need the law. And the intent of the law was to humble the sinner. That was its intent. But to those who love law, who desire to be subjected to the law, like Paul, are not humbled by the law. In fact, they're made proud by it. Like Paul, he says, 
I did all these things. Me, me, me. I was able to keep the checklist and you weren't. Therefore, I feel better about myself. And so the, the very law that was meant to bring humility to people brought pride. And that was never its intent. And the law is good for you as long as you can keep the rules. Because if you can keep the rules, then you feel pretty good about yourself. But if you can't, then you feel awful. Because the law isn't kind to um, sinners. It's kind to perfect people, but it's not kind to sinners. And Jesus uses a story to explain the difference between these two kinds of people. The one who boasts in their, 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 themselves and their ability to be right before God, and the person who humbles himself and realizes, man, I need Jesus. I need a Savior. In Luke 18, it says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So this is the difference. Living, recognizing, I, I'm a sinner. I need help. And then humbling ourselves. And it says when we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. In other ways, God says, if you exalt yourself and say, I can do it, you'll be humbled. I have a planner at home, and uh, I'm sure many of you do too. But on this planner in the bottom corner, I can write down habits that I want to do this week. So I'll write down uh, Bible. I'll write down prayer. Exercise, although that never happens. Um, uh, reading, you know, stuff like this. I'll write it down. And so each day, you know, I can check off my, my thing. And if I do check it off, I feel great about myself. That was a good day. But if I don't, then I feel awful about myself, and that was a bad day. And this is what it's like living under law. So if you do it, you feel great. If you don't, then you're a terrible person, and you feel awful about yourself. So... The first step that we have to take is to forsake our love of the law because without doing so, we will go back to it. We may love it, but it doesn't love us. And so Paul continues by pressing this issue of love of law in the following verses. He says, you who desire to be under the law. He's saying, do you not know what the law says? In other words, do you know what you're getting yourself into by doing this? He uses the example of Abraham and his two sons and their mothers to give an example of the differences of living under law and living under grace. So in verse 22 and 23, it says, For it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of the divine promise. So this is talking about Abraham. So if you don't know, uh, Abraham, in the book of Genesis, he's not a special guy. There's nothing, you know, great about him. God just picks him out and says, hey, I want to bless you. And I'm going to make your descendants a blessing to all the nations. So he picks him out, and he makes this promise to him. And Abraham says, oh, that's great, God. But my wife, Sarah, like, I'm really old, and she's barren. She, she can't conceive a child. And so, you know, he, he has to go on this faith journey with God. And so as they go along in the course of time, there's delay in the promise of God. And so they start to despair. And then... Uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, says, okay, just go sleep with my maidservant and have a child through him. And Abraham's like, I mean, I guess. I mean, I'll do whatever it takes for the family, you know. If I have to, I'll do it. So Abraham does that. And then, and then uh, but later, God delivers on his promise. And uh, Sarah conceives and has a son named Isaac. Now, what this means for us is that one son was born according to human effort, and the other was born through God's, God's effort, through God's grace. And what this means is that what we often do, like Abraham, is that when there is delay, then we often despair and then determine to make it happen on our own. When there's delay, we despair and then determine to make it happen on our own. This is what we all do. Moses had the exact same issue. Moses tried to be a deliverer, for Israel on his own. And so what he did was he killed this Egyptian and it was one person and then he failed and then he had to run away. And uh, 
But then he came back with God, and with God, he was able to make it happen. Because when we experience something, there's delay, there's despair, and then we determine to make it happen on our own. And so Ishmael is a direct, uh, Ishmael, I don't know if I said this, was Hagar's son that Abraham had uh, through the slave woman. So Ishmael is a direct representation of the belief that God helps those who help themselves. So how many of you have a promise that God has given you? Nobody? Okay. <laughs> so God, maybe God spoke something to you. God gave you a vision, gave you a picture of something that he's given you. And, but the, how many of you, I won't have you raise your hands this time. How many of you try to make that happen on your own? Right? And we all have, I think. I can say is when we, we try to make a, a promise of God happen our own, on our own. And when we do that, we move out of grace and into law. Because we believe that God is the initiator of the promise that he gave us, but not the sustainer and the finisher which he is. God isn't the one who just stands at the finish line and waits for us to do it. He's the one that walks alongside and helps us to reach what he's called us to. And I'm, and I'm not sure that God is as interested in the accomplishments as he is, seems to be more inclined toward the journey that we take with him. Amen. So he's more interested in gaining our trust and working for the results. It says in Romans 4, 5, I don't know if I have this one up there or not, but Romans 4, 5, it says, however to the one who does not work, however to the one who does not work, who does not try to make the promises of God happen on their own, to that person, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And so this is something that Abraham should have understood well because he's called the father of faith. He trusted God, and he should have understood it. But what Abraham started doing is he started listening to other voices. He started listening to Sarah, telling her, no, you need to make this happen on your own. God gave you this promise, but through the delay, it looks like maybe this isn't going to happen. So what you need to do is make it happen on your own. And Abraham believed it. And so to give an example, when I was uh, in ministry school, um, I remember I was 19 years old. I was sitting, I remember the exact seat I was sitting in, you know, there's, a, there's been a number of times that God has spoken to me that I've been 100% sure that was God. And I remember exactly where I was sitting, and God spoke to me in one of these times that I can remember. And he told me the calling on my life. And, you know, looking from where I am now to what that is, it's like, man, how am I going to get there? How am I going to get there from where I am now? God, you're calling me to this? And I'm sure Abraham felt the exact same way. God, look at where I am now. You tell me I'm supposed to be the father of many nations and I, my wife can't even have a son? You're calling me to this? How am I supposed to get there? But God never begins with grace and tells us to make it happen by law. He begins by grace and he sustains by grace through it all. Um, to give another example, uh, two Fridays ago, um, we took our youth group to the zoo in Zumbezi Bay. And we got there, and got all, it was super hot, and uh, got all hot and miserable in the, at the zoo, and we went over to Zumbezi Bay. And, you know, with my, with my boot, I was like, you know, I don't know if I'll be able to uh, get in any water or what that's going to look like, so we'll see what happens. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. So we get there, and we're looking for some seats, just looking for a stretch of chairs or whatever, and we find some. This wasn't intentional, but we lay all our stuff there, and it was right by the entrance of the Lazy River about the only thing that I could do. So I kind of hobbled my way over to the lazy river and I was able to go around twice and that was good for me. I was just thankful I was able to get in the water because it was so hot. But once I got in there, my only job was to stay in the floaty. <laughs> that was it. And then if I stayed in the floaty, then the river was gonna take me to where I needed to go. And that's the example that, I, that I'm using here as I'm saying is that your job is just to stay in grace is just to stay in the floaty. And then God's grace and his river. And if I were to get out of that, it was going to be really awkward. You know, you start walking, you got this thing put. It's just awkward, especially with my ankle. It's awkward, but there's a smoothness. There's a grace to it when you remain. You may not go as fast as you would like, but you're going to get there. And that's, that's what God is saying to Abraham. Is that, so is there anything in your life that began by God's grace, but you have felt that you need to make it happen on your own now? That I need to make this happen on my own. That God began it, but I need to finish it. And you might be saying, well, that's good, Mark, but what about work? Because we can't just sit around all the time. we got to do work, right? And I would say, exactly, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. 
In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul writes this about grace and working hard. I think we have this one. Maybe not. Okay. It says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So Paul works hard, just like us. We work hard. You work hard at your job. You work hard at everything you do. He's working hard. But what does he say? He says, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And so this is a complete 180 from where he was. The person who once boasted in his own ability to make these things happen, he says, I, you know, did all these things, now has completely transformed. Where now he says, I worked harder than, you know, I worked harder, but yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And that's what it is, the grace of God. So he's working hard, he's preaching, he's writing, he's traveling, he's making disciples, he's planting churches, he's tent making, he's doing these things. But he says, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And so I picture it like this, is that Paul gets up in the morning, gets out of bed, and he says, God, I need your grace today. He says, everything I do, I can't do it on my own. I need your grace to guide me, to lead me, to talk to people, to evangelize, to do all these things I'm going to do. I need you to be with me today because I can't do it on my own. I need your grace. And then what does he do? He gets up and he works hard all day. He does what he is supposed to do. He works hard. He does all these things. Then he gets home at the end of the day. He lays on his bed. He says, God, thank you for today. But everything that happened today was not a result of just me, but your grace with me. Your grace was there guiding me, sustaining me, helping me in everything that I did. And that's what it means to live in the grace of God, to empower us in our work. And so put this into your own life. You got stuff you need to do. Hardworking people. You got things you got to do, places you got to be. But how do you do that? Do we just do it on our own, or can we invite God into it and say, God, this thing, when I try to do it on my own, is really hard, but what I really need is your grace, and your grace is going to make this way easier for me, because I can't do this on my own. And then what do you do? You go and you work hard, and then God's grace is with you, sustaining you, helping you, and all these things. And this is something that Jesus understood perfectly well, is living in grace, And Jesus never tried to do something on his own. If you remember, he says, I don't do anything unless I see the Father doing it. So he never did anything in flesh according to his own desire. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. So he understood what it it meant to live in grace. And he said uh, he had complete trust in his Father, complete trust that even if he didn't understand what he was doing, he trusted him. He understood the plan of grace. And Jesus, in, the most, in his most trying time, in the gar- Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, the weight of the world is coming upon him. And it says that he had a different way. He said, Father, yet not what I will, but what you will. In other words, I trust what you have for me more than my ability, more than my understanding. I trust you. And that's something that we need to understand as well, is that Like Jesus, do we have complete trust in our Father's plan, or do we struggle with understanding the ins and outs of what He's doing? Do we trust in the plan of grace? Do we trust His timing to make these things happen, or do we feel that we need to make it happen on our own? And what we can learn from Jesus, who is the perfect example of sonship, is to humble ourselves in our times of misunderstanding. Because it's okay to ask questions just like Jesus did, but ultimately we have to recognize that He is God and that we are not. And it's in humbling ourselves that we find more grace. It says that God uh, resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so if we humble ourselves, that grace is there to meet us, to help us in all that we do. And the new covenant um, is there to help us. Sorry, jumped ahead of my notes. <laughs> um, so let's not make the same mistake that Abraham had made, which was he was given the promise and then tried to make it happen on his own didn't trust in God's promises. Let's trust the pace of grace. And then uh, continuing in verse 24a, it says, these things are to be taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. So again, he's talking, he's using these contrasts between old and new covenant and what it means for us as new new covenant believers in Jesus, what it means to completely leave the old and to live in the new. 
And what he says is that these women, the two wives of Abraham, represent two covenants. The one by the free woman and the one by the uh, slave woman. And to, so if you were a Jew at this time, what Paul had just said would have been crazy, would have been nuts, because he's suggesting that there's two covenants. And to suggest that there was two covenants was to say that we had entirely missed Jesus. And so that would have been crazy to them because they viewed the kingdom of God and the coming of Jesus as, as something in the future, some, something to come with the last age. But that's exactly what happened is they missed Jesus. And so what Paul is doing here is he's using the, the, the power of contrast to show the difference between law and grace and what it means to live completely free from law and to live under grace. And then to show the difference, he uses a series of, of contrasts. Now, this is a heavy a heavy portion of scripture, 24b through 27. It says, one covenant is from Mount Sinai, where it spares children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, barren woman, and you who never bore a child, shout for joy, cry aloud, you who never were in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, this is, like I said, an extremely heavy portion of Scripture, so I wanted to use an example. or to have. So if the youth group, some of the youth, and then the people I asked could come up, and then there's pieces of paper if you guys can grab as you come up these stairs here. So again, this is showing the contrast between living under law and living under grace. And I thought it was going to be really hard and maybe boring for me to explain this, but to have an example maybe will help us understand a little bit. And you guys could just stand back there. All right. Should be eight pieces of paper, yeah. Thank you, guys. Give them a hand. Yeah. All right. Okay, so he's using a series of contrasts, okay, to explain the old and, old and the new. So, who has Sarah? Can Sarah come stand over here? Sarah, New Covenant? And so what Sarah represents is the new covenant, is the new covenant of grace that we live under. And this is what Jesus came to accomplish, okay? And that's the comparison. Now, who has Hagar? Hagar represents the old covenant and uh, corresponds with Judaism, okay? So it's the first two. And then second, he uses the, um, what does he use next? Israel. Israel and works. So that's you, Haley. So if you could come stand up here. Now, Oh, sorry. That's New Covenant. No, we don't want you over there. Over here. Thank you. Sorry. So this is what it is. To, this, is this was the covenant that God made with Israel. Now, there's two kind of covenants that God makes. There's conditional and unconditional. A conditional covenant is the one that he made with Israel. He said, hey, if you do these things, you will be blessed. If you don't do them, you will be cursed. And this is what Israel was constantly living under, is the pressure of works, of trying to make these things happen on their own. And this is what happens for all of us who try to live under the old covenant, is that we're stuck in works. You're just trying to make the purposes of God happen on your own and all these things, okay? That's what that represents. To contrast that is the covenant that God made with Abraham by faith. And this is to be a foreshadow of the new covenant. So you can come stand up here. Thank you. So Abraham represents faith. Now, this is an example of an unconditional covenant that God made. It says that God appeared to Abraham and said, hey, I'm going to bless you. Um, and you don't, it says all, all Abraham had to do was to believe God and that God credited it to him as righteousness. So all he had to do was to have faith in God. And Abraham messed up. It says that he gave his wife to be with this Egyptian king or whatever. And so he made mistakes. He made plenty of mistakes, but God was still faithful to him. And this is to be a foreshadow of the new covenant, that by faith in Jesus, we are, it is credited to us as righteousness. We live under faith and no longer under works like Israel. And that's to be the example. Okay, next we have Ishmael. Ishmael, if you could come stand over here. Thank you. And what Ishmael represents is flesh. Is this is the, what Abraham tried to do. He tried to make the promises of God happen on his own. And so this is what happens for anyone who lives under the old covenant, is you, you, you don't have any power helping you make these things happen or to be obedient to God, but you're just simply trying to make it happen on your own. And that's what Ishmael represents, is flesh. That's what happens if you try to live under the old covenant. And then under the new covenant, we have Isaac. You come stand up here. Thank you. And Isaac represents the spirit. And because this is what happened, this is God trusted, uh, Abraham trusted rather, that God was going to make this happen. And he wasn't born as a result of trying to make it happen on our own, but by trusting God. 
trusting God. And this is what happens when we live under the new covenant. They we aren't trying to do these things in our own power, but we're trusting the spirit within us to bring about obedience. And that's what that means. And we have the uh, present Jerusalem, which will be over here. Thank you. And the present Jerusalem represents bondage. Because it says that the current uh, system of Judaism that exists in Jerusalem is these people live in bondage. And I'm going to read what it says. It says, Hagar equals Mount Sinai, which corresponds to the present Jerusalem, because just as Hagar and Ishmael were both slaves, so also all who sought to be made right with God on the basis of the law-observant system centered in Jerusalem are in a state of spiritual servanthood. So this is what happens. When you live under the old covenant, you're in a state of bondage, trying to make it happen in your own, and you're never set free. And to contrast that, we have the present, or the heavenly Jerusalem, and that represent, is represented in the new covenant. And the heavenly Jerusalem, it says, is our mother. So what does that mean? Because this is something that was known in the Old Testament literature, is after the Babylonians had destroyed the temple, it said that they had this hope, this vision of this new temple that was to come, that, would, uh, that the nations would gather together and God's presence would be with them, and that they could dwell with God. And so it was this, kind of like they view Jesus, this future view of this paradise. But what he's saying is that this present, this heavenly Jerusalem is actually our Jerusalem as the Christian church. And that this, this is what one author said. But the heavenly Jerusalem is the free woman. She is our mother. That is, if Hagar, Ishmael's mother, the slave woman, stands for the heavenly Jerusalem or Judaism, then, I, then Sarah, Isaac's mother, being a free woman, stands for the heavenly Jerusalem or the Christian church. And Paul adds, she is our mother. As Christians, we are citizens of the Jerusalem above. We are bound to a living law by a new covenant, and its citizenship is not bondage, but freedom. We live in freedom under the new covenant under Jesus. Now, could all my old covenant, could you guys just stand underneath the cross for me? Just stand over there. And then can we go to the next slide? Now, what, what happened to all these things? This is what Colossians said about, about Jesus and what he came to do. It says, uh, you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled out the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, having nailed it to the cross. And then in Ephesians, he says, For he himself is our peace, who made two groups into one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, talking about the law, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and ordinances. So what he's saying is, Jesus fulfilled these in himself, that by the cross, he took all these things out of the way. Jesus said, do not think I've come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. In other words, I didn't come to set these aside, I came to fulfill them. That Jesus is the true Israelite, and he fulfilled all these things. So that when he died, the law died. And all of its commandments and ordinances, he's taken out of the way by the cross. So we no longer have those things. We live with these things, by faith in Jesus, by the Spirit, through freedom. This is what it means to live under the new covenant and in Jesus. So thank you, guys. Give them a hand. Thank you. So the old covenant has nothing for us. It's only by grace. It's only by God and by his grace under the new covenant. Then continuing in verse 28. It says, Now you, brothers and sisters, are children of promise. So having then explained that, he says, you are children of promise. You are children of promise. John says it this way. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That we have been born again, not because someone thought it was a good idea, like Ishmael, but we've been born again by the Spirit, by our Father in heaven, by the Spirit. And we are children of promise. And then again, another author said, uh, here Paul told the Galatians that they were like Isaac because they too had been born into Abraham and God's family as a result of the promise and not by virtue of their own biological lineage or human efforts. Against the claims of the Judaizers that the Gentile Christians were by nature Ishmaelites, who could only become a part of the family of Abraham through circumcision, Paul stressed that the present reality of the salvation they had received. You are by faith already like Isaac, not Ishmael. Your connection to Abraham is not physical, but spiritual. 
Your merit contributes nothing to your salvation, which is God's free gift. It's all by grace, and it's all by his free gift. And it continues in verse 29 and 30. It says, At that time, just as at that time, the one born according to the flesh persecuted the son according... Are you guys doing okay, by the way? I know this is a lot. Yeah? Okay, good. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born according by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So for this section of Scripture, he he uses a a quote from Genesis chapter 21. So I want us to look at that really quick. Genesis chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. And this is talking about um, Isaac and when he was weaned. So it says, the child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, Ishmael, uh, the Egyptian had born to Abraham, was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of the slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Now, what's he talking about being weaned? It's because in that day, the infant mortality rate was really high compared to what it is now. And so it was, a, it was something to celebrate when the child was weaned, when it no longer had to depend on its mother for food, but was able to eat solid food, because then there, it was going to take the step into maturity. And that's what they're celebrating here, is that my son is growing, that God delivered on his promise, and that this promise is growing. And so we need to remember that in the context of what we're talking about, the Ju- uh, Ishmael represents the Juda- Judaizers, Judaizers, something like that. Who, who want to um, put the freedom that these Christians are experiencing, that they want to add law to it. So that's what Ishmael represents. And so we live by grace and grace alone. And so therefore, we're compared to Isaac. Now, the point is this, is that Ishmael, or law or legalism, wants to make sure that you never reach maturity as sons by mocking your trust in God and in his grace. Legalism wants to make sure you never reach maturity as sons by mocking your trust in God and in his grace. Because Isaac is mocked because he's, trust, he's, he's growing. He's growing. And so Ishmael's like starting to mock him, trying to discourage him. And Paul uses this phrase in Acts 20 through 32. He says, Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up, and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Because it's, it's not only by grace that we are born into this new life, it's also by grace that we're sustained and carried through. And this is what Ishmael's mocking him. You're still trusting in God? Why are you still trusting in God? Legalism coming in. You're still trusting God to bring that? You're still trusting God to make that happen? So he's coming and trying to discourage him. And so when you don't want to do one thing perfectly, Ishmael is there to mock you and to discourage you. And a lot of us, um, how many of you tend to be more uh, rule-oriented people? You like the rules. And then how many of you don't? You're like, I'm rebellious. I'm not going to raise my hand, okay? <laughs> so we have, and a lot of us, we like, we like uh, law because it provides for us a sense of safety, a sense of security. And if you think about it, but what that does is that if they're, they're meant to, there's a time for it, right? When you're a kid, you need more rules. You need more rules in place because you, you're not fully able to understand how the world works, and so you need more rules. But when you grow up, you no longer need those rules. And so, because if you had an adult child who you had to keep hiding the paint because you're afraid they're going to get out and finger paint the walls, right? That's not a good sign. It would, it would say that they hadn't reached maturity yet. Okay? But when you grow up, you no longer need those things because you've reached maturity. And so what I want to do is I want to touch here on the ability of God's grace to not only save us, which I think that we're uh, well acquainted with, but also the ability of grace to transform us and to sustain us. So um, the ability to grow. So um, growth as Christians is not something that comes by trying to be more godly. I think we all understand that. It's not by trying to make these things happen. Now, we are saved by grace through faith, and this is the initial and immediate response of trusting in Jesus, right? We all know that. But God's intention 
I believe primarily it was to save us, of course, yes, for eternity. But it wasn't just that. It was also to bring about transformation in this life now so that we wouldn't just um, go to heaven, but that heaven could actually, to say it in a way that, so that it helps us understand, that heaven could get back into us so that we could be transformed in this life. And so this happened because if you remember in the beginning, God made Adam and Eve in his image, in the image of God. So they're made for his image and his glory. They look exactly like God. And his presence is abiding with them, all these things. But they sin, and then they're separated from God. And then they take on the nature of God's enemy, which is what we see in the world, right? And we see in ourselves a lot of times. However, all the while, in the Old Testament, God was making these promises about how his spirit would reunite in the human heart and that transformation would begin to take place, that he would restore us back to his image. In Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And then in Jeremiah 31, 33, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So the promise here made specifically in Jeremiah, what he's saying is that we would no longer rely on the Old Testament law and commandments for our relationship with God, but by personal relationship with him, by his spirit, his very law would be imprinted upon our heart. And this is the difference between obeying God so that we have his favor and obeying God because I have his favor, right? This is the difference between working for love and working from love. Um, to give, I, I shared this story a couple times with the youth group. So this is probably their third time, so I apologize to you guys. Not really, but I do. And, uh, but there's a story about a woman who, who had desired to be married her whole life. And so she's just a, really a dream that she had on her heart. And so she meets this guy, and, and they get married. Initially, he seems very nice and kind, but she eventually finds that he's not the man that he said he was. So he starts treating her awful. He starts verbally abusing her, telling her how horrible she is and all these kind of things. Just awful husband. In fact, he was so awful that before he would leave for work, he would leave her a, a uh, list on the fridge of all the things that she needed to do before he got home or else she was going to have it. You know, he was going to be mad. And so after struggling with this for years, she finally musters up the courage and divorces this man. And then she's wondering, okay, am I ever going to find love again? What's this going to look like? And then this new man comes along, and he's, again, very kind, but she's hesitant, but eventually he ends her trust, and they get married. And then she finds that this husband is kind all the time, loves her no matter what, on her good days or her bad days or whatever. He loves her all the time. So they have a wonderful marriage. And, and so one day she's cleaning the house, and she, she's cleaning out a desk, and she comes ac across one of the old lists that her old husband had left her. And so initially all the emotions rush back to the dread and the fear that she lived under. And then she takes a deep breath and then she says, uh, she starts to read it. And as she's reading it, she recognizes something. That all of the things that her old husband made her do, she's already doing for her new husband because of love. And that's the difference between living under law and living under grace. One is I have to, the other is I get to. This is what God intends for us. Is because the law was meant for a time, but it was never meant to be forever. But when Jesus came, he took away sin so that we could receive adoption as sons, relationship by the Spirit. And this is what he says in Romans 8, and that through relationship with him, we could be restored to that image. I don't know if I have this one, but Romans 8, 29. For those whom God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He wants us to be conformed to his image, to look like Jesus. And so this is the, Jesus is the picture of, um, of the true humanity, what it means to live under God and under his grace, and what it means to be truly human. Now, we know that Jesus is 100% perfect and sinless. We know that, no question about that. And that he was God, 100% God, 100% man. And the Bible is also clear that Jesus was just a man, like you and I, not just a man, but a man. 
and he dealt with temptations like you and I do in his humanity, but it says that he, he did not sin, so he dealt with temptations, yet did not sin. But Luke has some more details about Jesus' early life. I want to show us how grace, how Jesus grew in grace. I don't know if I have these again, sorry. It says Luke 2.40. 2 it says, And the child, talking about Jesus, grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was with him. And John 1.14 says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Now the question is, if grace just has to do with my initial forgiveness of sins, why did Jesus need grace? Because he was sinless. He didn't need grace in that respect, right? So what's the purpose of grace? Why did Jesus have grace? Because grace is not just the ability to save us, but also the ability to transform us. Titus says it this way, talking about grace. He says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The grace of God teaches us to live right in this age. Here's a definition I found from Strong's. It says, of the merciful kindness by which God, <clears throat> exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, and affection, and kindles them the exercise of Christian virtues. So it's the grace of God that empowers me to live the Christian life. Now, when we talk about someone, maybe you, say, you see a dancer and say, man, they move with grace. They move with grace, or they cook with grace, or whatever you, you think of it. What we're saying is that there's just an ease about what they're doing. It just seems easy to them. There's an ease about the way that they move and they make these things happen. Uh, Chris Olave is a receiver at Ohio State. Um, I'm a huge Ohio State football fan, so he was just drafted in the, the first round in April to the New Orleans Saints. But when he played at Ohio State, he was known as being a player, full of, like just graceful in the way he moved. I remember one commentator said, he's just too sweet. And Chris Olave is too sweet. Right? He, he just, how does he do it? And what they're saying is that he would weave in and out of defenders and run faster than anyone else, but it doesn't look like he's trying any harder. It just looks like he's just kind of gliding away from them, that there was an ease about which he moved. And so when we say, when we're talking about grace, that's what it does for us, is it provides an ease, that there's just an easiness, so that when people see us, they'll be like, man, I struggle so much to be kind, to be generous, to be loving, but they just make it look so easy. That thing that is hard for me, they just are they're, they're so graceful. It just looks so easy to them. And that's what grace is supposed to do for us. Is the grace of God empowers us to live out what God commands. It provides an ease to living the Christian life. See, it's by faith in the grace of God and trust in his spirit not only to save us, but also empower us to live differently and transform us, not by the law, by grace. Now the question is, okay, how do I access this grace? This grace that transformed me, how do I access this? Well, how did you access the grace that saved you? It was by faith. So in the same way, you access the same grace by faith. It's always by grace through faith. So in the same way that I access the grace to save me, it's by faith. So as I go throughout the day, I, Father, I believe that you're with me. God, I need your grace today. I'm trusting in your grace today. God, I, I have to deal with this person. I have to... I have to help with the kids today. I have to do this. I have to go to work. I have to, you know, you got it. You, you have all these things you have to do. And you say, God, I, I need your grace today. I need your, your spirit and your grace to come and help me do this because I can't do it on my own. And then what the grace of God is, it provides an easiness about what you do so that people would see you and say, there's just such a grace with which they do, their, do life because it's not by our own power. It's by his spirit and by his grace. And so as we receive the spirit by grace, we are transformed by the Spirit through that same grace. This is what 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 says. Now the Lord is a Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image, right? Which is what we talked about, being transformed into His image with an ever-increasing glory. How does this happen? Which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit? Because later in Galatians 5, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, fruit or evidence that the Spirit is working in your life. It's not called the fruit of your trying harder or the fruit of anything else. It's fruit of the Spirit. It's evidence that the Spirit is working out in my life. So therefore, you can see love. You can see joy. You can see pace because you can see Him in me. So that's what it means to live by the Spirit. 
2 Timothy 3 says to grow in the grace and the knowledge which are in Christ. 2 Timothy 2 says, he, Paul exhorts Timothy to be strong in the grace which is in Christ. And see, I said this many times, but grace not only has the ability to save us, but also transform us. We will not receive glory for being any godlier than anyone else. All is by the grace of God. Just as we cannot boast of being saved by grace, we cannot boast of being transformed by grace. So do you have any measure of legalism after being saved to see that you're transformed? Are you trying to make it happen on your own? So don't listen to Ishmael calling out to you and, and saying, mocking your trust in God and his grace. All is by grace and grace is all you need. And now to finish, I just want to leave you guys with the exact same exhortation and encouragement that Paul leaves in verses 431 and 51. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for, free, uh, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So number one, the way I want to encourage us is what Paul does is that we are children of freedom, that we have a new identity in Christ. And therefore, we're not children of the old system of slavery, living under the old covenant, where we have a new covenant of grace. And so don't listen to those voices, whether they be in the world or culture at large or in your own head telling you that you need to add some measure of legalism into your life to see that you become what you ought to be. Don't trust them. Do not let Ishmael shame you for your freedom which you experience in Christ because it was for freedom that Christ set us free and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen. So anytime you hear those voices calling out that you should be living in a measure of legalism, that you need to add to Jesus or guilt because of your freedom, you say, I'm a child of promise, born of the Spirit. I fully trust my Father and in His ability to make me what I ought to be, not in my own efforts. That's what it means to be a child of promise. And then number two, number two encouragement is to stand firm in grace. Don't be moved. Don't be moved from grace. See, the point, this is the whole point that Paul has been driving toward in these last couple of chapters and verses of Galatians is don't be moved. Don't be moved from this grace in which you stand. And to, to use an example, I thought about this. If you guys, have anyone ever been to England? Yeah, a couple. I've never been, but I, I've seen these videos uh, or seen pictures of the uh, soldiers. You know, they got the tall, fuzzy black hats and they're red, you know. And I guess you can come up to them and kind of, you know, you can't touch them, but you can kind of yell in their face and stuff. And so I was thinking about it. I was like, but, you know, people come up and they try, but they're just, you know, they're standing at their post. They're not moved. They know what they're there to do. And so I was thinking about that's exactly what we're supposed to be. We're to be mannequins in grace that don't move. That Ishmael, all these voices are going to come in your face telling you to move, trying to get you to make it happen on your own, happen in the flesh, and you just stand firm. You just stand firm in grace. All these things that are yelling at you, you don't move because you know this is the only place I need to stay and he's going to make it happen. So stand firm in grace. And I, I really don't mean to do this. Every, it seems like every time I talk, I talk at least about Mary and Martha once. But I think this is a perfect example. Is if you're not familiar, two sisters, uh, Jesus is invited, he's there. One sister, Martha, is busy making sure everyone's accommodated for cleaning, cooking, whatever. And then Mary is just sitting at the Lord's feet listening to his word. And then Martha gets irritated, calls up to Mary, says, hey, you need to come help me. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried about many things, but only one thing is necessary, and Mary's chosen that good part. And that's all that we need is to remain at the feet of Jesus and say, I don't move unless he moves. I don't move unless he moves. If he stays here, I stay here. I only follow him. I stay with the pace of grace. I trust him to make me what I ought to be. If I'm with him, I'm where I should be. And so to finish today, I, I wanted to leave you with just a saying that maybe will help us to remember. It says, lose the law, replace with grace. Lose the law, lose legalism, lose the things that you're trying to trust in, we're trying to trust in, to make these things happen on our own, and, let, and let's trust grace and trust God and his ability to transform us and make us what we ought to be. So you are children of promise, children of freedom. Don't allow any measure of legalism into your relationship with Jesus. Stay simply at his feet and go where he goes and stay where he stays. You are received and adopted by grace and you grow by grace. Your father, trust your father to get you where you need to be just as Jesus did. Trust in grace. 
Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for just your word. Lord, I think I, I can speak for myself. We all have, whether it be 1% or 20% of legalism in our lives, just pray, Lord, that you would help us to get, uh, let go of those things and to trust grace completely. Help us to put our faith in you, like Abraham. Faith that you will make this happen. Help us to not rely on our own strength or our own works. God, I pray just right now that you would set any of us free right now by your spirit who are struggling with this. That you would help us let go of legalism and rules and to fully lean on you, on your spirit and your power. Holy Spirit, come, help us. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. Amen.